Welcome to Fast Asleep. Oh, you'll be glad you came back for part two of Algernon Blackwood's The Listener. Let's be honest. Often, classic short stories require your patience, as the plot can often develop very slowly and with great detail. But happily, this allows many of us to drift off early on, and that's okay. Today's episode, however, makes all that waiting, all the anticipation worthwhile. Now wait just a moment longer, because as you listen to our story's protagonist today, please realize that this protagonist could be Algernon Blackwood, because he often wrote about himself. He often wrote about his own life. It paralleled his work, you see. His friends knew him as an unmarried loner who could also be cheerful company. So, think about that as you tuck in and enjoy part two of The Listener. Oh, their foolishness makes me irritable and scatters all my thoughts. I should like to stick those lost pens into them and turn them out, blind-eyed, to be scratched and mauled by those thousand hungry cats. Oh, oh, what a ghastly thought. Oh, where in the world did that come from? Such an idea. Why, it's no more my own than it is the policeman's. Oh, yet I felt I had to write it. It was like a voice singing in my head, and my pen wouldn't stop till the last word was finished. (laughs) Ridiculous nonsense. I must, and I will, restrain myself. I must, I must take more regular exercise. Oh, my nerves and liver plague me horribly. November 4th. I attended a curious lecture in the French Quarter on death. Oh, but the room was so hot and I was so weary that I I fell asleep. The only part I heard, however, touched my imagination vividly. Speaking of suicides, the lecturer said that self-murder was no escape from the miseries of the present, but only a preparation of greater sorrow for the future. Suicides, he declared, cannot shirk their responsibility so easily. They must return to take up life exactly where they laid it, so violently down. But with the added pain and punishment of their weakness, many of them wander the earth in unspeakable misery till they can reclothe themselves in the body of someone else, generally a lunatic or a weak-minded person who cannot resist 
the hideous obsession. This is their only means of escape. Oof, surely a weird and horrible idea. I wish I had slept all the time and not heard it at all. My mind is morbid enough without such ghastly fancies, such mischievous propaganda. It should be stopped by the police. I'll write to the Times and suggest it. <laughs> Good idea. I walked home through Greek Street, Soho, and imagined that a hundred years had slipped back into place, and De Quincey was still there. De Quincey. He means Thomas De Quincey, an English essayist known for his autobiographical work entitled Confessions of an English Opium Eater. And De Quincey was still there, haunting the night, with invocations to his just, subtle, and mighty drug. His vast dreams seemed to hover not very far away. Once started in my brain, the pictures refused to go away. It seems De Quincey's father died when he was just a young boy, and he, De Quincey, spent much of his childhood alone. Yes, the pictures refused to go away, and I saw him sleeping in that cold, tenantless mansion with the strange little waif who was afraid of its ghosts, both together in the shadows under a single horseman's cloak, or wandering in the companionship of the spectral Anne, or later still, on his way to the eternal rendezvous at the foot of Great Titchfield Street, the rendezvous she never was able to keep. Oh, what an unutterable gloom, what an untold horror of sorrow and suffering comes over me as I try to realize something of what that man, boy he was then, must have taken into his lonely heart. As I came up the alley, I saw a light in the top window and a head and shoulders thrown in an exaggerated shadow upon the blind. I wondered what the sun could be doing up there at such an hour. November 5th. This morning, while writing, someone came up the creaking stairs and knocked cautiously at my door. Well, thinking it was the landlady, I said, come in. The knock was repeated, and I cried louder, come in, come in, but no one turned the handle and I continued my writing with a vexed, well, stay out then, under my breath. Went on writing? <laughs> I tried to, but my thoughts had suddenly dried up at their source. I could not set down a single word. 
It was a dark, yellow fog morning, and there was little enough inspiration in the air as it was, but that stupid woman standing just outside my door, waiting to be told again to come in, roused a spirit of vexation that filled my head to the exclusion of all else. Well, at last I jumped up, and why in the world, I said to myself, and opened the door. What do you want? Why don't you come in? I cried out. But the words dropped into empty air. There was no one there. The fog poured up the dingy staircase in deep yellow coils, but there was no sign of a human being anywhere. I slammed the door with imprecations upon the house and its noises and went back to my work. A few minutes later, Emily came in with a letter. Were you or Mrs. Monson outside a few minutes ago knocking at my door? No, sir. Are you sure? Mrs. Monson's gone to the market and there's no one but me and the child in the whole house. And I've been washing the dishes for the last hour, sir. I fancied the girl's face turning a shade paler. She fidgeted towards the door with a glance over her shoulder. Wait, Emily, I said, and then told her what I had heard. She stared stupidly at me, though her eyes shifted now and then over the articles in the room. Who was it? I asked when I had come to the end. Mrs. Monson says it's only mice, she said, as if repeating a learned lesson. Mice, I exclaimed. It's nothing of the sort. Someone was feeling about outside my door. Who was it? Is the sun in the house? Oh, her whole manner changed suddenly, and she became earnest instead of evasive. She seemed anxious to tell the truth. Oh, no, sir, there's no one in the house at all but you and me and the child, and there couldn't have been nobody at your door. And as for them knocks, uh... she stopped abruptly, as though she had said too much. Well, what about the knocks? I said. Of course, she stammered, the knocks isn't mice, nor the footsteps neither, but then again she came to a full halt. Anything wrong with the house? Oh, Lord, no, sir, the drains is splendid. I don't mean drains, girl. I mean, did anything, anything bad ever happen here? Oh, she flushed up to the roots of her hair and then suddenly turned pale again. She was obviously in considerable distress and there was something she was anxious yet afraid to tell, some forbidden thing she was not allowed to mention. I don't mind what it was, only I should like to know, I said encouragingly. Raising her frightened eyes to my face, she began to blurt out something about that which happened once to a gentleman that lived upstairs. And then a shrill voice calling her name sounded below. Emily! Emily! It was the returning landlady. Oh, and the girl tumbled downstairs as if pulled backwards by a rope leaving me full of conjectures as to what in the world
could have happened to a gentleman upstairs that could in so curious a manner affect my ears downstairs. November 10th. I have done capital work, have finished the ponderous article, and had it accepted for the review, and another one ordered. Ah, I feel well and cheerful, and have had regular exercise and good sleep. No headaches, no nerves, no liver. Those pills the chemist recommended are wonderful. I can watch the child playing with his cart <laughs> and feel no annoyance. Sometimes I almost feel inclined to join him. Even the gray-faced landlady rouses pity in me. I am very sorry for her, so worn, so weary, so oddly put together. Huh, just like the building. She looks as if she had once suffered some shock of terror and was momentarily dreading another. When I spoke to her today, very gently, about not putting the pens in the ashtray and the gloves on the hook shelf, she raised her faint eyes to mine for the first time and said with the ghost of a smile, I'll try and remember, sir. <laughs> I felt inclined to pat her on the back and say, Come, cheer up and be jolly. Life's not so bad after all. <laughs> oh, I am much better. There's nothing like open air and success. Oh, and good sleep. They build up as if by magic the portions of the heart beaten down by despair and unsatisfied yearnings. Even to the cats, I feel friendly. When I came in at 11 o'clock tonight, they followed me to the door in a stream, and, well, I stooped down to stroke the one nearest to me. Bah! The brute hissed and spat and struck at me with her paws. The claw caught my hand and drew blood in a thin line, while the others danced sideways into the darkness, screeching as though I had done them an injury. I believe these cats really hate me. Perhaps they are only waiting to be reinforced. Then, then they will attack me. <laughs> in spite of the momentary annoyance, this fancy sent me laughing upstairs to my room. Ooh, well, the fire was out, and the room seemed unusually cold. As I groped my way over to the mantelpiece to find the matches, I realized all at once that there was another person standing beside me in the darkness. I could, of course, see nothing, but my fingers feeling along the ledge came into forcible contact with something that was at once withdrawn. It was cold and moist. I could have sworn it was somebody's hand. Oh, my flesh began to creep instantly. Who's that? 
I exclaimed in a loud voice. My voice dropped into the silence like a pebble into a deep well. There was no answer, but at the same moment I heard someone moving away from me across the room in the direction of the door. It was a confused sort of footstep and the sound of garments brushing the furniture on the way. The same second my hand stumbled upon the matchbox and I struck a light. Well, I expected to see Mrs. Monson or Emily or perhaps the son who was something on an omnibus, but the flare of the gas jet illumined an empty room. There was not a sign of a person anywhere. I felt the hair stir upon my head, and instinctively I backed up against the wall, lest something should approach me from behind. I was distinctly alarmed. But the next minute I recovered myself. The door was open onto the landing, and I crossed the room not without some inward trepidation, and went out. The light from the room fell upon the stairs, but there was no one to be seen anywhere, nor was there any sound on the creaking wooden staircase to indicate a departing creature. I was in the act of turning to go in again when a sound overhead caught my ear, it was a very faint sound, not unlike the sigh of the wind, yet it could not have been the wind, for the night was still as the grave. Though it was not repeated, I resolved to go upstairs and see for myself what it all meant. Two senses had been affected, touch and hearing, and I could not believe that I had been deceived. So, with a lighted candle, I went stealthily forth on my unpleasant journey into the upper regions of this queer little old house. On the first landing, there was only one door, and it was locked. On the second, there was also only one door, but when I turned the handle, it opened. There came forth to meet me the chill, musty air that is characteristic of a long, unoccupied room. With it, there came an indescribable odor. I use the adjective advisedly. Though very faint, diluted as it were, it was nevertheless an odor that made my gorge rise. I had never smelt anything like it before, and I cannot describe it. The room was small and square, close under the roof, with a sloping ceiling and two tiny windows. It was cold as the grave, without a shred of carpet or a stick of furniture. The icy atmosphere and the nameless odor combined to make the room abominable to me, and 
after lingering a moment to see that it contained no cupboards or corners into which a person might have crept for concealment, I made haste to shut the door and went downstairs again to bed. Evidently I had been deceived after all as to the noise. In the night, I had a foolish but very vivid dream. I dreamed that the landlady and another person, dark and not properly visible, entered my room on all fours, followed by a horde of immense cats. They attacked me as I lay in bed and murdered me and then dragged my body upstairs and deposited it on the floor of that cold little square room under the roof. November 11th. Since my talk with Emily, the unfinished talk, I have hardly once set eyes on her. Mrs. Monson now attends wholly to my wants. As usual, she does everything exactly as I don't like it done. It is all too utterly trivial to mention, but it is exceedingly irritating. Like small doses of morphine often repeated, she has finally a cumulative effect. November 12th. This morning I woke early and came into the front room to get a book, meaning to read in bed till it was time to get up. Emily was laying the fire. Good morning, I said cheerfully. Mind you make a good fire, it's very cold. The girl turned and showed me a startled face. It was not Emily at all. Where's Emily? I exclaimed. You mean the girl as was here before me? Has Emily left? I came on the 6th, she replied sullenly, and she'd gone then. Well, I got my book and went back to bed. Emily must have been sent away almost immediately after our conversation. This reflection kept coming between me and the printed page. I was glad when it was time to get up. Such prompt energy, such merciless decision seemed to argue something of importance to somebody. November 13th. The wound inflicted by the cat's claw has swollen and causes me annoyance and some pain. It throbs and itches. I'm afraid my blood must be in poor condition or it would have healed by now. I opened it with a penknife soaked in an antiseptic solution and cleansed it thoroughly. I have heard unpleasant stories of the results of wounds inflicted by cats. November 14th. In spite of the curious effect this house certainly exercises upon my nerves, I like it. It is lonely and deserted in the very heart of London, but 
it is also for that reason quiet to work in. I wonder why it is so cheap. Some people might be suspicious, but I did not even ask the reason. No answer is better than a lie. Now, if only I could remove the cats from the outside and the rats from the inside. I feel that I shall grow accustomed more and more to its peculiarities and shall die here. Oh, that expression reads queerly and gives a wrong impression. I meant live and die here. I shall renew the lease from year to year till one of us crumbles to pieces. From present indications, the building will be the first to go. November 16th. It is abominable the way my nerves go up and down with me, and rather discouraging. This morning, I woke to find my clothes scattered about the room and a cane chair overturned beside the bed. My coat and waistcoat looked just as if they'd been tried on by someone in the night. I had horribly vivid dreams, too, in which someone covering his face with his hands kept coming close up to me, crying out as if in pain. Where can I find covering? Oh, who will clothe me? Oh, how silly! And yet it frightened me a little. It was so dreadfully real. It is now over a year since I last walked in my sleep. And I woke up with such a shock on the cold pavement of Earl's Court Road, where I then lived. I thought I was cured, but evidently not. This discovery has rather a disquieting effect upon me. Tonight, I shall resort to that old trick of tying my toe to the bedpost. November 17th. Last night, I was again troubled by most oppressive dreams. Someone seemed to be moving in the night up and down my room, sometimes passing into the front room and then returning to stand beside the bed and stare intently down upon me. I was being watched by this person all night long. I never actually awoke, though I was often very near it. I suppose it was a nightmare from indigestion, for this morning I have one of my old vile headaches. Yet all my clothes lay about the floor when I awoke, where they had evidently been flung. That I so tossed them? during the dark hours, and my trousers trailed over the step into the front room. Worse than this, though, I fancied I noticed about the room in the morning that strange, fetid odor. Though very faint, it's 
Mere suggestion is foul and nauseating. What in the world can it be, I wonder? In future, I shall lock my door. November 26th. I have accomplished a lot of good work during this past week and have also managed to get regular exercise. I have felt well and in an equable state of mind. Only two things have occurred to disturb my equanimity. The first is trivial in itself and no doubt to be easily explained. The upper window where I saw the light on the night of November 4th, with the shadow of a large head and shoulders upon the blind, is one of the windows in the square room under the roof. Now, in reality, it has no blind at all. And here is the other thing. I was coming home last night in a fresh fall of snow, about 11 o'clock. My umbrella low down over my head. Halfway up the alley where the snow was wholly untrodden, I saw a man's legs in front of me. The umbrella hid the rest of his figure, but on raising it, I saw that he was tall and broad and was walking, as I was, towards the door of my house. He could not have been four feet ahead of me. I had thought the alley was empty when I entered it, but might, of course, have been mistaken very easily. A sudden gust of wind compelled me to lower the umbrella, and when I raised it again, not half a minute later, there was no longer any man to be seen. With a few more steps, I reached the door. It was closed as usual. I then noticed with a sudden sensation of dismay that the surface of the freshly fallen snow was unbroken. My own footmarks were the only ones to be seen anywhere, and though I retraced my way to Tile Point where I had first seen the man, I could find not the slightest impression of any other boots. Feeling creepy and uncomfortable, I went upstairs and was glad to get into bed. November 28th. With the fastening of my bedroom door, <laughs> the disturbances ceased. I am convinced that I walked in my sleep. Probably I, I untied my toe and then tied it up again. The fancied security of the locked door would alone have been enough to restore sleep to my troubled spirit and enable me to rest quietly. Last night, however, the annoyance was suddenly renewed by another and more aggressive form. I woke in the darkness with the impression that someone was standing outside my bedroom door, listening. 
As I became more awake, the impression grew into positive knowledge. Though there was no appreciable sound of moving or breathing, I was so convinced of the propinquity of a listener that I crept out of bed and approached the door. As I did so, there came faintly from the next room the unmistakable sound of someone retreating stealthily across the floor. Yet, as I heard it, it was neither the tread of a man nor a regular footstep, but rather it seemed to me a confused sort of crawling, almost as if someone on his hands and knees. I unlocked the door in less than a second and passed quickly into the front room, and I could feel as by the subtlest imaginable vibrations upon my nerves that the spot I was standing in had just that instant been vacated. The listener had moved. He was now behind the other door, standing in the passage. Yet this door was also closed. I moved swiftly and as silently as possible across the floor and turned the handle. A cold rush of air met me from the passage and sent shiver after shiver down my back. There was no one in the doorway. There was no one on the little landing, and there was no one moving down the staircase. Yet I had been so quick that this midnight listener could not be very far away, and I felt that if I persevered, I should eventually come face to face with him. And the courage that came so opportunely to overcome my nervousness and horror seemed born of the unwelcome conviction that it was somehow necessary for my safety as well as my sanity, that I should find this intruder and force his secret from him. For was it not the intent action of his mind upon my own in concentrated listening that had awakened me with such a vivid realization of his presence? Advancing across the narrow landing, I peered down into the well of the little house. There was nothing to be seen. No one was moving in the darkness. Oh, and how cold the oilcloth was to my bare feet. I cannot say what it was that suddenly drew my eyes upward. I only know that, without apparent reason, I looked up and saw a person about halfway up the next turn of the stairs, leaning forward over the balustrade and staring straight into my face. It was a man. He appeared to be clinging to the rail rather than standing on the stairs. The gloom made it impossible to see much beyond the general outline, but the head and shoulders were seemingly enormous and stood sharply silhouetted against the skylight in the roof immediately above. The idea flashed into my brain in a moment 
I was looking into the visage of something monstrous. The huge skull, the mane-like hair, the wide humped shoulders suggested in a way I did not pause to analyze that that which was scarcely human and for some seconds fascinated by horror I returned the gaze and stared into the dark inscrutable countenance above me without knowing exactly where I was or what I was doing. And then I realized in quite a new way that I was face to face with the secret midnight listener. And I steeled myself as best I could for what was about to come. Come back for the conclusion of the listener in our next episode. Good night.